Praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, as you're listening to this, I believe it is December 19th, 2022, in the fourth week of Advent. Although for me, as I'm recording it, it is currently the Feast of St. John of the Cross, December 14th. I'm trying to get a little bit ahead on these podcast recordings so I can get them uh, edited, scheduled, and they'll just... uh, seamlessly appear in your podcast app uh, over the coming weeks as I am finishing up my academic work here and then going on break. So if all goes as I have planned, you will continue to receive these podcasts as usual over the coming weeks, although uh, I will have already recorded them. I will be speaking to you, in fact, from the distant past, (laughs) and you will be hearing it in what is for you the present. Ah, the wonders of modern technology. So now, for you, as you're listening, this is the fourth week of Advent. We are getting ready for Christmas, coming up in just a few days. Hopefully, by the time this airs, I am already back in Oregon uh, for Christmas break. Although right now, as I say, I'm still here in Menlo Park, and we are in the thick of finals week. I have so far finished two, and I have two to go. Also a paper still to finish, and then... Of course, uh, the, big, the big one is my MA thesis, which I have a lot of revisions to make. So for me, um, right now, I have a good amount of work still ahead. But I'm confident that it will get done in good time. For today, let us, let's uh, do something we haven't done for a while. Let's jump over to the theology segment. You'll hear a jingle here you haven't heard in, in uh, many a long month. Because I'd like to share with you some thoughts stemming from a recent conversation I had with a friend about virtue and some specific virtues needed for pastoral ministry. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur. So as I say, I was having a conversation with a friend over the weekend, and we got to talking about the quality of relatability, which uh, of course is something that priests and pastoral workers of all description uh, certainly strive for. Relatability, um, I think, is basically the quality of what you say or what you mm, show forth in your life finds an echo in somebody else's heart such that when I'm speaking to you, if what I'm saying is relatable, uh, something something about it rings true in you as you're hearing what I have to say. Likewise, when there is this quality of relatability, it uh, opens up this kind of interpersonal connection whereby we're thinking and feeling together. You think, okay, this is somebody who kind of gets me. (laughs) This is somebody who kind of understands um, to some measure what's going on inside of me, inside of my heart, my mind, my life. Therefore, uh, the quality of relatability, the fruit that it bears is trust, a relationship of trust. This is somebody that I can trust. And what uh, this person has to say in terms of advice or teaching, yeah, the value of it, uh, may or may not be so great, but at least I'm going to give them a fair hearing because what they have said so far seems to strike a, a symphonic chord in my own experience. So we were talking about relatability. Now, now there's a, a, a danger, there's a dark side to relatability. And I think that comes when we chase relatability as a good um, above other goods which ought to have primacy of place. And so this is uh, the, young, the young people, the youths <laughs> these days, uh, they use the word cringe, like that's cringe. <laughs> and a lot of the time, what uh, we do when we're trying to chase relatability is kind of cringe. You know, you think of uh, priests who try all kinds of tricks to, to capture people's attention and to, to seem relatable, like, you know, uh, singing in the homily or, you know, performing a rap for the youth group or riding into mass on a hoverboard. These are all things I've seen uh, in YouTube videos and things like that. 
So those kinds of, of tricks to generate relatability, uh, to pursue, to chase after relatability, I think really uh, run aground and they run, they run the risk of actually destroying the relationship of trust, which relatability is meant to create. To understand the, the main point I wanted to make here, we have to have a kind of a Thomistic concept of virtue. So what is a virtue? A virtue is a good habit that makes us good. By a habit, I mean, of course, something kind of stable in the soul that we acquire through repeated action. And a virtue, as a good habit that makes us good, a virtue directs us habitually towards some specific good. So St. Thomas says, for every special good, there's a special virtue. Now there's the cardinal virtues, and then they kind of have their own sub-virtues. So the cardinal moral virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, uh, these are kind of the big categories of virtue, but then within them, or um, if you want, beneath them, in kind of an ordered hierarchy, there are sub-virtues which direct us to even more specific goods. So um, within the virtue of justice, the cardinal virtue of justice, which has to do with giving to others what they are due, what we owe them, uh, there is the, the sub-virtue, if you want, of religion. Religion actually is a virtue, and it has to do with giving God what he is due, what we owe him. And so we exercise the virtue of religion by certain acts, like going to Mass. When we go to Mass, we worship God, and therefore we exercise the virtue of religion because we owe God right worship, simply because he's our creator, he made us, we're creatures, he deserves our worship, our reverence, our honor. And glory. So that's just a real brief rundown of the Thomistic theory of virtue. Virtues are habits. We form the virtues, we acquire them in us by doing good acts, and then the habit makes it easier to do those good acts. It makes it so then, um, you know, when the alarm clock goes off on Sunday and we're tired, but we have to get up and get ready for Mass, it's not even really a decision. We just get up and do it. <laughs> it's pretty easy. And actually, as the virtue takes root in us and becomes very stable, we, we would say um, in Thomistic language, it becomes co-natural with us, then the effects of virtue are it makes the good action, uh, as one professor I had says, makes it quick, easy, and fun. <laughs> so there's very little deliberation. It's easy to choose the good, and it's actually delightful to, to choose the good thing. It would be harder for the truly virtuous person uh, to stay in bed after the alarm clock goes off and go back to sleep than it is to get up because he's really acquired the virtue of religion and other related virtues as well, which are needed to, uh, to do the good in that situation. So is relatability a virtue? I would actually say no. And here's why. Because of the definition of relatability that we're working off of, relatability is not a habit which exists within the soul of a particular person, which uh, has become co-natural with that person and is directed to a certain good. Relatability actually is my subjective response to the presence and the activity of another person. So relatability um, is not in the one acting Relatability is found in the one who sees the other person, do you see what I mean? And judges them to be relatable. <laughs> now, there is a virtue which is related, pun intended, to relatability. It's related to relatability. And this is a virtue that we do need to cultivate if we want to have these relationships of trust and uh, if we want to um, invite relatability. That virtue, we might say, is authenticity, the virtue of authenticity. Now, this word is not found in the Summa Theologiae. Uh, <laughs> authenticity comes from the Greek. It actually means like to be one's own ruler in ancient Greek, autothentes. Um, so I like kind of like I'm my own master. Uh, interesting etymology there. Its Latin equivalent would be something like sincerity, sincer, sincerus, 
And that has something to do with a quality of like oneness, or we might say wholeheartedness. Um, the prefix sin, you know, we, we, uh, it seems to be the same root that we find in words like simplex, simple, or um, simul at the same time. So it has something to do with oneness, with wholeness. Now, in St. Thomas, we do find there is a virtue, a sub-virtue of justice, which he calls the virtue of truth. And I think that's basically what we mean, at least in Christian Catholic context. When we talk about the virtue of authenticity or sincerity, what we really mean is living in the truth. And of course, when we start to speak about living in the truth, we're very close to what St. Teresa says about humility, <laughs> the virtue of humility. So you're starting to see how these are connected, right? She says about humility, humility is to walk in the truth, andar en la verdad, to walk in the truth. So I would say there is a virtue, if you want to say it this way, a virtue of authenticity, a virtue of sincerity, or to use the Thomistic language, the virtue of truth. And what that virtue consists in is the habit of expressing oneself by words or actions, gestures, bodily postures, uh, whatever it might be, the habit of expressing oneself in the truth of who one is and who one wants to become. The virtue of authenticity, sincerity, truth consists in habitually expressing the truth of who we are and who we want to become. Now, this is just anecdotal, but what I notice is the people who I find to be relatable are the people who are really, for the most part, authentic or sincere. They habitually um, disclose the truth of what they're thinking, what they're feeling. They give the impression of being without guile, <laughs> like our Lord says about, uh, who is it? Uh, Nathaniel, I think, who comes to him. And he says, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. The Lord exclaims when he comes to him, here is a true Israelite indeed, without guile. <laughs> so what that the Lord would say that about each one of us, to be, to be guileless, that is uh, to be authentic, to be sincere, to really um, yeah, open up our hearts and show what's within. Now to be sure, this is uh, a special virtue and it's not the primary virtue. So uh, all, the, all the moral virtues are directed by prudence. Prudence is the charioteer, if you want, that directs the other moral virtues. So in, in acquiring the virtue of authenticity or sincerity or truth, however we want to say that, um, its acts have to be directed by prudence. So we're not going to go around wearing our hearts on our sleeves all the time and just exposing everything uh, all the deepest truths about ourselves to every random person we come across. Uh, we're going to be prudent about that, and we're going to really judge, as I believe St. Paul says in one of his letters, um, to whether what we, we have to say in that moment is going to be truly good and profitable for the salvation of their souls. So here also we see that this virtue, like all, all the virtues, not only is directed by prudence, but it is informed by charity. Charity is the queen of all the virtues, including prudence. And the acts of all the virtues are directed ultimately by love for the other. So I'm just kind of painting for you a sketch here of the role of this special virtue, authenticity, sincerity, or truth within the moral life. It's not the whole thing, it's not even the most important thing, but it is an important and a special virtue directed by prudence, informed by charity, which if we acquire this virtue, if we become the kind of people who habitually live in the truth and express the truth by what we say and what we do, then I think we will become the kind of people who are relatable <laughs> and who inspire and invite relationships of trust and intimacy which is something that as pastoral workers, as priests, as those who have the care of souls and who work in ministry, we really want to invite. We want people to um, 
we want people who approach us or who meet us to feel that this is somebody I can trust. This is somebody I can talk to. This is somebody I can expose my heart to, the places where I'm wounded, where I'm weak, where I'm afraid, where I'm doubtful. And just to close the circle, um, in my experience, the people who I feel that with, who I feel are relatable and trustworthy, I feel that about them because they have been self-disclosing and authentic with me. And I think, okay, this is somebody who has experienced in their own heart, in their life, the kinds of things that I am experiencing. Therefore, I can show up to them in the truth of who I am. I'm not going to be rejected. I'm not going to be falsely judged. They're going to receive well what I share with them. And they're probably going to be able to give me some good advice. So for us as pastoral workers, um, I, keep, I keep saying pastoral workers. I don't even really, I don't really like that phrase, but... For, for all of us who are working for the building up of the kingdom of God, uh, I hope that this kind of anatomy of the moral life and the place within it of authenticity, the virtue of truth or sincerity has been helpful. This is a special virtue. This is one that we can work to acquire. We ought to work to acquire. However, I think we should be careful about chasing relatability. Rather, Insofar as we're going to work towards that goal, we should work towards habitually being the kind of people who live in the truth and express the truth. And if we do that, I think we will find that we become more and more relatable to others along the way. All right, so much for that. Now, let me share with you this poem I alluded to earlier from St. John of the Cross. Whoever is a little one, let him come to me. I have no need to climb to the height of the great saints, but I just have to be myself, a little child. In these words of scripture, I found at last my little way to become a saint. Last week, we read this beautiful poem, The Unpetaled Rose by St. Therese, about strewing these rose petals before the feet of the infant Jesus. This week, I wanted to share with you a bit of a longer poem by St. John of the Cross. And once again, today, December 14th, as I'm recording this, is his feast day. So it's a very fitting day for me to uh, be reading this poem to you. By way of introduction, I will just say this poem which is entitled Romance sobre el Evangelio in principio erat verbum acerca de la Santísima Trinidad. Romance on the Gospel text in the beginning was the word regarding the Blessed Trinity. So this poem, this Romance, is a glimpse into the eternal conversation, the dialogue outside all time between the Father and the Son it aims to look behind those opening words of St. John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the uh, prologue of John's Gospel, which narrates for us in beautiful, stunning, theological language, the incarnation of God, God who becomes man. Uh, St. John, in this poem, is looking behind that Gospel text, and he's imagining and describing for us what was it like in the interior life of God, the Father and the Son conversing with one another in the intimacy of their communion, uh, just before, if we can even use the word before with respect to eternal persons, just before the moment when God becomes man, when he becomes incarnate in the womb of Mary. So you see what, what St. John is doing here. He's... he's uh, having us lift our gaze to an eternal perspective and consider what was happening in the very heart of God. And then he kind of brings us down again. He looks at creation, uh, which is awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And then he brings us to the very moment of the incarnation itself. Now, this is kind of a long poem, so I'm just going to begin it here without any further commentary. Except to say this, of course, it was written originally in Spanish. I'm going to read it for you, though, in its English translation, with the caveat that 
if you enjoy this and if you read Spanish, please go look it up online and read the Spanish. The Spanish is so much better. I mean, poetry in its original language is always incomparable. Any translation is kind of a betrayal. So this will give you the sense of what St. John is saying, but in it, you know, some of the, the beauty, um, unfortunately, is lost, uh, as is the nature of translation. All right, so let us begin. In the beginning, the Word was. He lived in God and possessed in Him His infinite happiness. That same Word was God, who is the beginning. He was in the beginning and had no beginning. He was Himself the beginning and therefore had no beginning. The Word is called Son. He was born of the beginning, who had always conceived him and who always was conceiving him, giving of his substance always, yet always possessing it. And thus the glory of the Son was the Father's glory, and the Father possessed all his glory in the Son. As the lover in the beloved, each lived in the other, and the love that unites them is one with them. They're equal, excellent as the one and the other, three persons and one beloved among all three. One love in them all makes of them one lover, and the lover is the beloved in whom each one lives. For the being that the three possess, each of them possesses. And each of them loves him who bears this being. Each one is this being, which alone unites them, binding them deeply, one beyond words. Thus it is a boundless love that unites them. For the three have one love, which is their essence. And the more love is one, the more it is love. In that immense love, proceeding from the two, the Father spoke words of great affection to the Son, words of such profound delight that no one understood them. They were meant for the Son, and He alone rejoiced in them. What He heard was this, My Son, only your company contents me, and when something pleases me, I love that thing in you. Whoever resembles you most, satisfies me most, and whoever is like you in nothing will find nothing in me. I am pleased with you alone, O life of my life. You are the light of my light. You are my wisdom, the image of my substance, in whom I am well pleased. My son, I will give myself to him who loves you, and I will love him with the same love I have for you, because he has loved you, whom I love so. My son, I wish to give you a bride who will love you. Because of you, she will deserve to share our company and eat at our table the same bread I eat, that she may know the good I have in such a son and rejoice with me in your grace and fullness. I am very grateful, the son answered. I will show my brightness to the bride you give me, so that by it she may see how great my father is, and how I have received my being from your being. I will hold her in my arms, and she will burn with your love, and with eternal delight she will exalt your goodness. Let it be done, then, said the Father, for your love has deserved it. And by these words, the world was created, a palace for the bride, made with great wisdom, and divided into rooms, one above, the other below. The lower was furnished with infinite variety, while the higher was made beautiful with marvelous jewels that the bride might know the bridegroom she had. The orders of angels were placed in the higher, but humanity was given the lower place, for it was in its being a lesser thing. And though beings and places were divided in this way, yet all form one who is called the bride. 
for love of the same bridegroom made one bride of them. Those higher ones possessed the bridegroom in gladness, the lower in hope, founded on the faith that he infused in them, telling them that one day he would exalt them and that he would lift them up from their lowness so that no one could mock it anymore, for he would make himself holy like them. And he would come to them and dwell with them, and God would be man, and man would be God. And he would walk with them and eat and drink with them, and he himself would be with them continually until the consummation of this world. When joined, they would rejoice in eternal song, for he was the head of this bride of his, to whom all the members of the just would be joined who form the body of the bride. He would take her tenderly in his arms and there give her his love. And when they were thus one, he would lift her to the Father where God's very joy would be her joy. For as the Father and the Son and he who proceeds from them live in one another, so it would be with the bride. For taken wholly into God, she will live the life of God. By this bright hope, which came to them from above, their wearying labors were lightened. But the drawn-out waiting and their growing desire to rejoice with their bridegroom wore on them continually. So with prayers and sighs and suffering, with tears and moanings, they asked night and day that now he would determine to grant them his company. Some said, if only this joy would come in my time. Others, come, Lord, send him whom you will send. And others, oh, if only these heavens would break. And with my own eyes I could see him descending. Then I would stop my crying out. O clouds, rain down from your height. Earth needs you. And let the earth open which has borne us thorns. Let it bring forth that flower that would be its flowering. Others said, What gladness for him who is living then, who will be able to see God with his own eyes and touch him with his hand and walk with him and enjoy the mysteries which he will then ordain. In these and other prayers, a long time had passed, but in the later years their fervor swelled and grew when the aged Simeon burned with longing and begged God that he might see this day. And so the Holy Spirit, answering the good old man, gave him his word that he would not see death until he saw life descending from the heights, until he took God himself into his own hands and holding him in his arms, pressed him to himself. Now that the time had come when it would be good to ransom the bride, serving under the hard yoke of that law which Moses had given her, the father, with tender love, spoke in this way. Now you see, son, that your bride was made in your image, and so far as she is like you, she will suit you well. Yet she is different in her flesh, which your simple being does not have. In perfect love, this law holds, that the lover becomes like the one he loves, for the greater their likeness, the greater their delight. Surely your bride's delight would greatly increase were she to see you like her in her own flesh. My will is yours, the Son replied, and my glory is that your will be mine. This is fitting, Father, what you, the Most High, say, for in this way your goodness will be more evident, your great power will be seen, and your justice and your wisdom. I will go and tell the world, spreading the word of your beauty and sweetness, 
and of your sovereignty, I will go seek my bride and take upon myself her weariness and labors in which she suffers so, and that she may have life, I will die for her. And lifting her out of that deep, I will restore her to you. Then he called the archangel Gabriel and sent him to the Virgin Mary, at whose consent the mystery was wrought, in whom the Trinity clothed the Word with flesh. And though three work this, it is wrought in the one. And the Word lived incarnate in the womb of Mary. And he who had only a father now had a mother too. But she was not like others who conceived by man. From her own flesh he received his flesh. So he is called Son of God and of man. When the time had come for him to be born, he went forth like the bridegroom from his bridal chamber, embracing his bride, holding her in his arms, whom the gracious mother laid in a manger among some animals that were there at that time. Men sang songs and angels, melodies, celebrating the marriage of two such as these. But God there in the manger cried and moaned. And these tears were jewels the bride brought to the wedding. The mother gazed in sheer wonder on such an exchange. In God, man's weeping. And in man, gladness. To the one and the other, things usually so strange. Dear friends, I'll invite you now just to take a few moments of silence to contemplate the beauty of the incarnation of God in this romance, this poem by St. John of the Cross. In a few moments, we will move over to our weekly Dickens conversation with Rachel, discussing our latest read, but one, Barnaby Rudge. Before that, let's just linger for 30 seconds or so here in the mystery of God who became man for us. of times it was the worst of times come in come in and know me better man god bless us everyone what the dickens all right welcome back to another episode of in your embrace on the dickens chronological reading club very glad to welcome back again, friend of the podcast and founder of the DCRC, Rachel Murphy, to discuss one of our recent reads, at least uh, from a couple of months ago now, a Barnaby Rudge, uh, an unexpected favorite, I think, of uh, many of the DCRC members. So Rachel, welcome back. And uh, could you give us a little bit of an introduction maybe to Barnaby Rudge, especially what was going on for Dickens as he wrote this uh, largely forgotten novel. Oh, thanks, Deacon Matthew. Yeah, it was an unexpected favorite. It, I think there's been more enthusiasm about Barnaby than I've seen so far for <laughs> any of them, I would say. So Barnaby appeared in a weekly serial publication called Master Humphrey's Clock in 1841. 
it came out in weekly installments between February and November of that year. But it had a had a rough beginning. It it was probably the one that was most delayed. Dickens had been thinking about this for several years, and he had issues with publishers, especially Bentley and Bentley's Miscellany. And so it was delayed several times. It just it seemed to have trouble getting started. But once it did get started, it, it wasn't particularly successful. I mean, for Dickens, I was just reading that the publication started out with sales of something in the neighborhood of 70,000 each week, but then dropped progressively to like 30,000 over the course of the time, which for most people would be great. For Dickens, wasn't particularly good. But I think he was trying to try out a, a form of fiction, historical fiction, which was very popular at the time, following on like Sir Walter Scott novels. And the only other time he did this was with The Tale of Two Cities, which was, mm. gosh, I mean, nearly 20 years later in 1859. And it's very different from his other works. It's almost split into two sections. The earlier portion, we're getting used to our characters and kind of the domestic scene of the Maypole and the Warren and young Barnaby Rudge. And, and then the second portion is on the riots of 1780. So it takes place five years later. So you have this gap of five years. And so you start to see how the bigger societal things going on are affecting all these characters we've gotten to know in the first portion. So it is kind of split. And Peter Aykroyd wrote of it as one of Dickens's most neglected, but most rewarding novels, which is really interesting. It's also very strange. It has an ensemble cast. And the lead character is Barnaby Rudge, the title character, clearly someone who has some kind of an intellectual or developmental disability. We don't really know exactly what is going on, but he's clearly someone who's innocent, but he's caught up in a greater political, societal situation going on, which is the Gordon Riots of 1780, which was essentially protesting some of the new legislation trying to repeal these anti-Catholic measures from like the end of the 17th century. Catholics did not have a lot of rights at the time. And a lot of these measures from 1698 or whatever were not really put in practice in practical terms anyway, but they were trying to make it official to decrease the intolerance for Catholics and allow them to join the army or own property and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, Lord Gordon was protesting these recent measures and it ended up kind of getting out of his hands. So I'll just say that is an introduction that for the leader of the riots, the acknowledged leader, Lord George Gordon, this event on June 2nd, 1780, which lasted six days, the rioting lasted six days. It was essentially something that didn't have a true leader because Lord Gordon, he allowed things to get out of his hands. I think that's what Dickens was trying to get at is that mob violence, rioting is not the answer. It's going to get out of control. And then people don't even know what they're fighting for anymore. So I think that might be a good setting of the scene, a good backdrop, which was applicable to things going on in Dickens' own day, like the the Chartist riots uh, that were going on in the 1840s, for example. So kind of a warning against mob violence, which you would write about again later in Tale of Two Cities. It's really striking reading Barnaby Rudge in the present day. This novel is so timely, even to recent actions going on in the United States of America in the past couple of years. We've seen it quite a lot of uh, of mob violence, and it's interesting too, just to look back at the preface that Dickens wrote to this novel. I have it quoted here. He says, "What we falsely call a religious cry is easily raised by men who have no religion, and who, in their daily practice, set at naught the commonest principles of right and wrong." that it is begotten of intolerance and persecution, and that it is senseless, besotted, inveterate, and unmerciful. All history teaches us. Yeah, we see in these riots, as you're pointing out, ostensibly they're for the purpose of protecting England as a Protestant nation, right? And kind of keeping Catholics in, the, in their right place within the society, keeping them out of positions of, of power or security. But we see in Dickens's ensemble cast the kinds of people who get caught up in this riot. I mean, one thing I remember towards the end of the novel, we hear there are even some Catholics themselves who were rioting in the streets of London. They just kind of get caught up into this mob 
and all sorts of people who sort of have their own issues, right, Rachel? We kind of see like in the mob as personified in certain characters uh, of whom one is Hugh, just as an example. We see they have their own wounded, traumatic past and, I, and, and a lot of like pent up anger and just their own issues that kind of need working out. And that all gets taken up into the mob where it finds its release. It's fascinating. I think Dickens is masterful at the way he sets up the scenario of all these characters who have other issues. They have anger issues for other reasons, personal reasons, maybe their personal work situations, like Sim clearly despises the kind of master-servant relationship he's in. Hugh is a, you know, essentially um, an illegitimate son of a, an absent father. And we have all these scenarios where people are dissatisfied and angry for some reason, yeah. and they get caught up in the mob violence, and it really has nothing to do with the actual issues that they're supposedly rioting about. And even That's Barnaby. I think Barnaby is a kind of a, maybe an allegorical figure for this is the perfect scenario of someone who really has no idea what the writing is all about. He's an innocent who's gotten caught up in, in this larger situation and he thinks he's doing good by being a part of it. And really, you know, he has no, no concept of what the whole thing is about in the first place. So, yeah, I think Dickens is criticizing mob violence is any kind of a solution to issues. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's clearly not a solution. And I wonder to what extent it's even meant to be by those who get caught up in the mob. Um, there's a very evocative scene in, in this novel where the, the mob violence has been going on for some days and they've been burning down the homes of, of Catholics. And uh, you, you know what I'm referring to. They go to burn down uh, the home of a certain character. Mm-hmm. And Dickens writes about how the these arsonists are leaping in and out of the flames, some even jumping into the fire to their own death. I mean, they're caught up in this lunacy, this ecstasy almost of violence. And there's something demonic in it. It's as if they've been taken over by the spirit of the mob. Yeah. So there's not a rational purpose, it seems, once they get into this mob mentality. They're not thinking about trying to advance you know, the cause of Lord George Gordon. They're just thinking about destruction, wreaking havoc. Absolutely. We talked talked a little bit in the group about Grip the Raven. Um, <laughs> Dickens had several pet ravens in his life, and, and Grip becomes, I would say, this figure. Of, I think at one point he's actually referred to as a supernatural agent in the book. Mm. And it's so interesting that the way he talks is clearly just nonsensical, you know, maybe parroting things other people have said, but he's kind of the master of young Barnaby, who's, as you talked about, the innocent who's getting caught up in these situations. Grip is continually described as almost like a devil on his shoulder who's inciting him to do different things and kind of controlling him to do different things. And I, I think that's a really good point that a lot of times, not only is solution not the purpose of violence that there's something other perhaps it's possessing people to get caught up it's almost a demonic spirit if you will mm. something that's clearly possessing people to let all inhibitions go to let their aggressions out to yeah. do damage maybe destruction because maybe they've been powerless to do it in other ways to build anything so the tendency is to just destroy haphazardly Something is rotten in uh, the state of England yeah. <laughs> at the outset of Barnaby Rudge, for sure. Yes, absolutely. I think about you know some commentators in 2020 when we had nationwide riots breaking out that summer. Some commentators, I think, rightly pointed out that the nation had been in unprecedented lockdown for months. I mean, the social stresses were so high. Um, there were so many factors that probably led to this deep societal restlessness and, and a lot of just pent up passions that found their vent in these riots in, in 2020. And likewise, in the DCRC, some people talked about the January 6th uh, riots at the US Capitol. Mm-hmm. And maybe sociologists could look at different factors behind that. But I think 
within our society right now, there are a lot of people who feel this kind of restlessness. Like there's not really a, a vent for their, what you might say, political passions or you know whatever it may be. They're not heard, and that ends up giving rise to these kind of violent extremes of, of, of mob activity. Now, an interesting thing, Rachel, we could look at maybe in Barnaby Rudge, we talk about this ensemble cast. Within the ensemble, though, there are a number of characters, I can count three or four, maybe five characters who have a kind of a dysfunctional relationship with their fathers. So there's sons whose fathers are either physically absent, morally absent, or else like in the case of Joe Willett, the father's domineering, borderline abusive. I wonder if maybe we could just discuss this theme a little bit, because I think that maybe kind of gets close to the heart of what Dickens is describing for us here. Perhaps we could start just with Barnaby, our title character. What's his relationship like with his father, or lack thereof? <laughs> and how do you think that influences uh, his character arc? Well, should I, should I give spoilers? <laughs> I think we probably I... safely can, but we'll put our big spoiler alert here. Yeah, so... I'm going to give a big spoiler right now. So. Um... <laughs> Basically, young Barnaby has an apsy father. His father was a steward of Reuben Haredale, who was murdered 22 years ago. So this is where the story begins. Is we have this story about this murder that's happened, and then the steward and the servant went missing, so they were suspected of the deed. And then later, a body was found that was supposedly Barnaby Sr., the steward. So then... They figured the other missing person, the gardener, was at fault. Anyway, long and the short of it is this mysterious stranger shows up and is kind of harassing Barnaby's mother. And we find out that this is actually Barnaby's father. It's Barnaby Rudge Sr. who dressed the other servant of Haredale in his own clothing and murdered him. So he's a murderer. He's an absent father. And the two of them meet up in prison when Barnaby's younger gets put into Newgate for his part in the riots. And we have this very unlikely meeting of father and son there. So here's a character with completely absent father, no real guidance. And as we've talked about someone who has some kind of an intellectual developmental disability, um, sees things in a, in a unique and quite an interesting way, but he's also one who can be manipulated by others. Unfortunately, when he Mm. thinks he's doing good. So yeah, that's the central, I think, father and son relationship. And then, you know, several others we could mention. Of course, John and Joe Willett. Poor mm-hmm. Joe is continually, continually put down by his father and just yeah. belittled. And he's almost living in a servile relationship towards his father, you know, working at the Maypole. You, you almost feel like there's some issue going on with his father about himself that he's taking it out on his son. Who knows what it is exactly? But so there's another scenario. And then we have, of course, to John Chester, one of the great villains, who is trying to prevent his son from marrying a Catholic, Emma Haredale. Right. And, and, and to John Chester, of course, is named after Lord Chesterfield, who he reads and is enthralled by, whose writings... In fact, I think probably the I think the work he was reading was uh, Chesterfield's letters to his son, which are essentially this gentleman encouraging his son to basically look out for himself. It's about using mm. and manipulating others. You know them only to use and manipulate them. You know, so it, it's entirely a selfish, self-centered universe that Sir John Chester lives in, uh, and everyone else are kind of pawns that he can move around his chessboard. <laughs> so there's another relationship. And then we could almost say that there are several father figures you might say are almost like father figures to Lord Gordon. You have Gashford, this kind hmm. of evil figure yeah. who's influencing him for the bad. You have John Gruby, who ends up kind of making an interesting turn as it goes along. And so <laughs> it's interesting that several of these father figures are named John. Of course, hmm. Dickens' father was John Dickens, and he was having some issues right. at the time. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was that was a really interesting. So clearly, Dickens is obsessed with the father-son and master and servant relationship. I think at this time and in this book in particular, 
and seeing that going from the domestic to the kind of larger societal sphere and where the, where the dysfunction right. happens between, right. as you say, natural man and more of a civilized society, I think they all come together in this book in a really unique way. Right. So let's let's uh, just dig into that analogy a little bit more closely, Rachel, between, on the one hand, the family, the biological or natural father and the son, and then on the other hand, on the civilizational or social scale between government and the people, between the rulers and the ruled, if you want to put it that way. This is a classic analogy. It goes back to Aristotle in the politics. He talks about the father as the ruler, the despotes of his family, the little kingdom. And to be sure, there's much about that analogy that, uh, shall we say, it leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> it's not a complete telling of the role of a father in a family by any means. There's much in it that's open to abuse, etc. Nonetheless, there is something that's true in, in that. And we can see in, for example, just zeroing in again on the character of Barnaby. Barnaby was raised without a father, but he has this raven grit who's always with him, this supernatural agent. And there's one quote where, and we're never quite sure how seriously to take what Barnaby says. It's fanciful and the language is, makes you wonder what exactly his grip, so to speak, on reality is, how strong or tenuous that grip might be. But he says about grip, he says, he calls me and makes me go where he will. He goes on before and I follow. He's the master and I'm the man, right? So one thing that occurs to me is looking at Barnaby and grip, again, Aristotle has this analogy of man as a charioteer being pulled along in a chariot by his passions, which are like the horses. And man has to gain the mastership over the passions in order to direct the chariot to go where he wants. And looking at Barnaby and Grip, I sort of think, could we say Grip maybe is kind of a symbol of the passions within the soul of man, which kind of need to be tamed and put under the control of right reason. Because in, in Barnaby, we do see there's this kind of a restlessness in him. And he ends up getting swept up by this mob violence and even finds himself unexpectedly at the head of the mob alongside Hugh later on. And so I, I'm speculating here, along with our friend Myron Magnet in this book, Dickens and the Social Order, but might we not see in Barnaby, played out on the level of an individual life, something that Dickens is also warning us about on the level of a society, which is, yeah, passions need to have their proper vent. Passions have their role in the moral life as well as the social life. But passions, given free reign, lead to very dark places. There has to be a kind of a, a rationalizing, or if you want, a civilizing influence uh, in order to correctly you know, direct the passions of our human nature. I think that's spot on. I think that's exactly what Grip in particular symbolizes for the story. And Chris uh, in our group had brought up the same thing about the restlessness of several of the characters. They need somewhere for their passions to have some kind of a direction or a focus. Mm -hmm. And it almost doesn't matter what it is. It almost doesn't matter what the cause is. It's an excuse or it's a vent. It's a way to vent these things. And Hugh is, talk about another father-son relationship, you know, Hugh with, with his absent father. They keep describing Hugh as almost part animal, part man. And you have this sense of him as half kind of wild, so, someone who's not civilized or and of course, at, at one point, he is threatening rape to Dolly, essentially. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's interesting. I think Grip, while being kind of a delightfully strange Dickensian character, yes. <laughs> he does almost serve the purpose of incarnating the, these passions that are just unruly and going nowhere in particular. They just need to have a vent, an outlet, <laughs> without that civilizing influence. And I was just looking at in my copy of Barnaby uh, from the introduction by John Bowen, he writes here, the bird resembles a trickster figure in Native American folklore, often embodied hmm. as ravens or crows, who continually violates the boundary between nature and culture and is not guided by moral conceptions of good and evil. A spirit of disorder, an enemy of boundaries, he is inassimilable to rational or coherent explanation, a figure for what hmm. is evil, or waste of historical understanding. 
In a novel deeply interested in and committed to the binary logics of both historical conflicts, Protestant versus Catholic, order opposed yeah. to disorder, and of melodrama, good against evil, innocence confronting guilt, grip and his inhumanly human speech are the remainder of the system, what cannot be thought of or narrated within such polarities. It is impossible to decide who or what he is, harmless pet or evil spirit, or to domesticate him within the homes of the novel or history. I thought it was such a fascinating quote, and it really, uh, it really sums up a lot about um, what grip seems to symbolize in the story and the warning, as you say, Dickens is giving about le- giving our passions free reign without being kind of subordinated to our to our will and our reason. That's exactly what happens in Barnaby Rudge. No one really knows what they're fighting for. <laughs> right. And that's what's so unsettling, I think, at least for me, about to go back to that scene where the mob is burning down Haredale's house. Yeah. It's not done for any rational purpose or end. The closest to a purpose, you might say, is vengeance on Haredale. But you have to imagine the vast majority of the men there don't even know who Haredale is. They haven't even met the man. They don't know anything about him. It's this complete irrational uh, venting of passion, which which really degrades those who are part of it to the level of essentially beasts, where mm-hmm. they're just frolicking about in the flames. I think it might not be too far of a stretch even to say they're lower than animals. Even an animal would run from a fire. It's not going to mm-hmm. remain in the flames. They're, they've descended to the level of like the demons who are just glorying in violence and destruction, even their own self-destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. Dickens really in this uh, exquisitely gothic novel, he takes us to some very dark places. <laughs> I think I had yeah. nightmares after reading that chapter. <laughs> but uh, it's, such, it's such a wonderful novel, though, isn't it? It's wonderfully strange and in some ways bleak. In some ways, like you mentioned with Grip, this is, is a delightful, really a delightful character. You can't help but laugh whenever Grip shows up, even though he's such an ambivalent character, this little raven. Yeah. yeah. And I, I really enjoyed Barnaby Rudge. I think it might be, I think I've said this about every novel successively we've read, but it might be my favorite so far. <laughs> Ooh, <all> right. <laughs> Certainly it's gone way up in my list. It was kind of low down for, for so long. I hadn't read it for years and now it's definitely shot up yeah. <laughs> quite a ways. So yeah, absolutely loved it. And then actually really eager to, to reread it. Hopefully not, not in the too distant future. <laughs> But we've got a lot of Dickens to get through, I realize. <laughs> we do have a lot a lot more Dickens ahead of us than behind. Well, just to wrap up this conversation, Rachel, any final thoughts pertaining to Barnaby Rudge and uh, maybe with a particular eye towards, as the title of this commentary has it, Dickens and the Social Order? What do you think, um, if we could neatly package it up, what is Dickens's warning or message to us about the social order, even in our own day? I think your quote from the preface is perfect. What we falsely call a religious cry is easily raised by men who have no religion. And that was why, you know, Dickens lifted up the virtues of uh, compassion and goodness, benevolence, philanthropy. Clearly, mob violence is something that uh, so easily gets out of hand, even by the leaders. Lord Gordon is the perfect example of someone who was in way over his head and he didn't intend what happened. And I think it's just a warning that it's never, it's never an answer. It's never a solution. So I would say definitely uh, read Barnaby with that, with that eye to its applicability. Now I think it's perennially applicable and it's a great Gothic story too. Absolutely. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us again. And uh, we look forward to having you back on soon, maybe with another special guest to discuss Dickens again come Christmas time. Until then, dear listeners and friends, the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.